I'll be reading uh, from Nehemiah 4 and chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah, and the Am- Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, Even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he'd break their wall down. Hear, O God, how we're despised. Return their, repro- their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden builders is failing, yet there's much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us, Ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the walls, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the, who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried the burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we're separated on the wall, far from one another. 
At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been done and accomplished with the help of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, I ask that you would not only open our ears to hear it, but open our eyes to see. Give us eyes of faith to see how we as a people are to work, how we have a great kingdom project set before us. Uh, may you take a, a word in a situation thousands of years ago and apply it to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second week in our Nehemiah series, Building Together. And this Sunday, we're focusing on the building of a wall. The building of a wall may not feel like a mighty matter. But the importance you attach to it depends upon your perspective. Let me illustrate what I mean as we begin through a story about three builders. Imagine that you, a stranger, approach three nearly identical men all doing the exact same job. They're taking bricks from over here, and with a trowel, they're lathering one side with mortar before laying them over there in neat lines, one atop another. The three men are all dressed exactly the same. They all have the same amount of dirt and dried mortar stuck to their clothes, their hats, their hands. There's a sameness in all their movements and work rhythms. At a distance, you could not tell them apart. But as you get closer, you can see the countenance on their faces are very different. The first man looks weary and tired. As you approach him, you ask him, what are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing? He gripes in response, I'm laying bricks. He huffs and turns away. You turn to the second man, who doesn't look weary like the first but his face is full of concern. You ask the second man the same question as the first. What are you doing? Preoccupied with his level, he doesn't even look up as he answers, I'm building a wall. And I take special care to ensure that every brick is perfectly level. He says that as he carefully checks his measurements a second 
and then a third time. Turning from both the weary man and the worried man, you fix your eyes on the last builder, a man doing the exact same job as the other two. But the look on his face is completely different. He doesn't look weary or worried. He looks to be full of wonder. He looks elated and happy as he does the exact same work. What are you doing? You ask the man. He turns and smiles as he responds. I'm building a cathedral. I'm part of building something beautiful and glorious. Something that will outlive me and be a beacon of hope for generations to come. Every brick my hands lay is a joy and a privilege. That man can't stop smiling at his good fortune that he gets to do this work. The three builders are doing the exact same job, but they have three very different perspectives. I'm laying bricks. I'm building a wall. I'm constructing a cathedral. The happiest bricklayer, we all know, is the one with the biggest vision, the one who sees the bigger picture. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 4 and the building of a wall, it will mean more to us if we can see the bigger picture. The building of a wall becomes a mighty matter when you focus on the grander design. Building a wall around Jerusalem isn't like adding a security fence around your house, but on a larger scale. It's part of a bigger picture. A bigger picture that involves protecting the worship and word and work of God in the place God chose to make them dwell. Nehemiah sees this bigger picture and he stirs up those around him to see it as well. This morning, we want to see the bigger picture that Nehemiah sees and then ask ourselves, what's the bigger picture for us here at Alberta Baptist? And what can we learn from Nehemiah as we pursue building that bigger vision together? Let's first see what's going on in Nehemiah's day before making some applications to our day. I'll summarize what's going on in Nehemiah under mostly three main headings. Three main headings, if you're taking notes. The first of these three is this. Forces opposing God's work. Forces opposing God's work. We see those in verses 1 through 3, verses 7 and 8, and verses 10 through 12 in Nehemiah chapter 4. Some of the opposition to the work first comes in the forms of taunts and jeers directed at God's people. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah's enemies and the wealthy men and the the military men taunt by saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Verse 2, you see it? What are they doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? You then get a very vivid image of feebleness in their verse 3 taunt. Verse 3, uh, one of them says, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. A fox. 
A fox is about as light and fleet of foot a creature as you can imagine, yet one fox atop the wall would start the whole thing tumbling down. That's the taunt. Taunting is a favorite weapon of some because mocking words sow seeds of doubt. Throwing the weakness of God's people in their faces is a way of making them doubt themselves and doubt God. And if God's people can be cowed into never attempting anything great for God, then the enemy's work is already done. But thankfully, Nehemiah won't let taunts stop him from getting started. He encourages the people to press on in the face of taunts and jeers, which also encourages the opposition to escalate. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairs of the wall of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches were, began to be closed, they were very angry. Before they were just angry, now they are very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. If taunts and jeers aren't enough to discourage God's people from doing God's work, then the opponents escalate. Now there are plots for armed conflict, incursions to cause confusion in the city. Oftentimes in God's work, you press through an initial obstacle only to find things get worse. Not better, they get worse. The opposition has another card to play. They have another barrel loaded. And sometimes you'll find the opposition coming not just from sworn enemies, but also from friends and family. That's what's happening in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, it's those in Judah who are saying, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. People in Judah are saying that. They're, they're, they're going along with what the enemies are saying. Verse 11, the enemies are saying they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Verse 12, when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against you from every place where you may turn. Come out, abandon the work. Here, it's not just the enemies, but it's those in Judah who are deriding the work. The Jews who live nearby are coming to them ten times, saying, attacks are coming from every side. Leave the city, leave the work, and return to us. We often expect opposition from without. But the most hurtful opposition comes from within from friends and family, from church family, from those you viewed as co-laborers. The, those gut punches hurt worse because you often don't see them coming. You're not expecting them. We have a theology of sin in the church that should teach us to expect it, but we're still very often surprised by friendly fire. I know I am. In my heart of hearts, I think, I still expect, if something is God's work and God's will, that it'll be smooth sailing. 
without a single obstacle to overcome. But that's rarely the case, is it? The fact that these scenes of opposition are scattered throughout the chapter signals something to us. Opposition usually isn't a one and done. It's ongoing. In the story of God's work, opposition will be scattered throughout. We should expect it. Because without the opposition, the conclusion is never as sweet, is it? You know this already, both from stories and from sports. The sweetest moments come through overcoming the greatest obstacles. Blowout games aren't worth rewatching, are they? And stories with no tension aren't worth rereading. There is not much to it when the opposing team never shows up in the story or in the game. We should expect opposition, often ongoing and escalating opposition, and God has good reasons to make that part of the story. One of those reasons is our second heading. One of the reasons opposition exists is so that we might have godly responses to opposing forces. Godly responses to opposing forces. This heading covers all the other verses in chapter 4. This heading also comes with six subheadings, if you're taking notes, which I'm going to move through very quickly. Maybe they'll all appear on the screen. We'll see. Uh, What are some godly responses to opposing forces faced by God's people? The first is prayer. Ah, there it is. The first is prayer. Verses 4 through 5. We see that response there. Immediately following the taunts and jeers of Nehemiah's enemies comes a prayer. Do you notice that? Once again, we see for Nehemiah, and it's hopefully the case for us as well, that prayer is the knee-jerk reaction when bad things happen including demoralizing opposition. A believer's first response to opposition should always be one of prayer. Pouring out your heart to the Lord. Prayer. Here's a second response to opposition that we see in verse 6. A mind to work. A mind to work. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for... The people had a mind to work, a mind to work. The godly response to opposition isn't to sit on our hands and second guess. It's found in God's people adopting a mind to work. It's found in rolling up our sleeves and setting ourselves to serving the Lord. Having having a mind to work means devoting our imaginative energy to the task of advancing Christ's mission and then going out and getting her done, right? Dependent prayer coupled with a mind to work are probably the enemy's worst fears in the people of God, having both dependent prayer and a mind to work. We see those two things coming together in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, But we prayed to our God, And we set up a guard against them day and night. 
this godly response to opposition is just a melding of the first two responses together. And it's this. It's prayer coupled with action. Prayer coupled with action, verse 9. Look at it again. We prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. We prayed, and we acted. We prayed to God day and night, and we set a guard day and night. Charles Spurgeon said, to pray and not to watch is presumption. You pretend to trust God, and yet you are throwing yourself in danger. If you pray to be kept, then be watchful. Prayer without watchfulness is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. The Apostle James says it's hypocrisy for a man to pray for someone else, to be warm and to be filled, and then not lift a finger to help him with either warmth or food. It's hypocrisy to pray for God's provision and then not act not act like you are part of that provision. The godly response is to pray and to act. Verse 9, we pray to our God and we set a guard. We see a fourth godly response to opposition in verses 13 and 14. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, I stationed men in the lower parts of the space of the wall, the exposed places. I stationed families, people in families with their swords and spears and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses." I'll summarize the response found in these two verses as this. Take courage, remembering God, and a good worth fighting for. It's a longer point, longer subpoint, but there it is. Take courage, remembering God, and a good worth fighting for. Do not be afraid of them is a call to take courage. Be of good courage, Christian, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Take courage and remember the Lord. Remember we've been made citizens in his kingdom. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? Take courage and remember whose side you're on. The light must overcome the darkness. This shadow is only ever a passing thing. If you've seen the film version of The Two Towers... You'll remember this conversation between Sam and Frodo when they're talking about the great stories. Sam says, folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo despairingly asks, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam responds that there's some good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Sam's response to Frodo echoes Nehemiah's speech to the people. Remember there's a good in this world worth fighting for. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. Just wars and battles are fought, not for conquest, 
but so that a man might be free to potter about in his garden with his wife and his children and without the fear of oppression. The godly response to evil recognizes that there is a good in this world that is worth fighting for. And we do that fighting largely by doing this, building and protecting. Building and protecting. We see that in verses 15 through 20. In verses 15 through 20, the people work at building the wall. And they do it with a trowel in one hand and with a sword in the other. They're building, and at the same time, they're also protecting what they're building. We fight the forces opposing God's work largely by building and protecting a culture of the kingdom wherever we go. God's kingdom comes with a certain culture, a kingdom culture that is almost entirely upside down to the culture we find in the wider world around us. God's kingdom says it isn't the rich who are blessed, but those who are poor in spirit. It isn't the mighty, but the meek who are favored. It isn't the popular, but the persecuted who are blessed. To save your life, you got to lose it. To be great in life, you've got to become the least. You've got to become a servant of all. Believers push back against the forces opposing God's work in the world largely by building and defending a culture shaped by the gospel. This is something I take very seriously as a pastor. This is where a lot of my leadership energy goes. It goes into building a gospel-saturated culture and protecting that culture from attacks and from distractions. And as with building anything, as with any building project, there will be some pivotal moments. You're pouring the foundation. There will be some pivotal moments and special seasons, which brings us to the final sub-point under godly responses to opposing forces. We need to be seeing special seasons. Seeing special seasons. That's verses 21 through 23. In verses 21 through 23, Nehemiah recognizes it's a pivotal moment in the life of God's people. He calls everyone to work from the break of dawn until the stars come out, verse 21. Furthermore, he calls everyone in from the countryside. Come, sleep overnight in the city and be our protection, verse 22. And he says in verse 23, So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each of us took his weapon even to water. It's a pivotal moment. So everyone sleeps in his clothes and sleeps with his weapon in his hand. Nehemiah doesn't think this will be the new normal that will last forever. He recognizes that this is a special season. And in special seasons, we can rise to do some things that aren't sustainable forever. We don't change out of our work clothes. We work long hours. We give extra sacrificially of our time and our resources. We neglect other needful things in order to participate more fully in the mission. We give up some temporary freedoms 
in order to safeguard greater long-term freedoms. God's people can recognize special seasons and special short-term, short-term calls to action. The times aren't normal, but it is normal for special seasons to come from time to time for God's people. Chapter 4 gives us snapshots of forces opposing God's work, but also snapshots of godly responses to those forces that oppose. Responding this way ultimately leads God's people to this conclusion. We see the conclusion of the story in chapter 6. Turn over to chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 of chapter 6 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elu in, the, in 52 days. When our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This brings us to our third and last main heading. Work requiring a God explanation. Work requiring a God explanation. We see that in chapter 6. The wall was finished. The special season of work lasted 52 days. It was such a great work done by such a weak people in such a short time that the surrounding nations were forced to come to a humbling conclusion. God helped them. God helped them. Those on the outside looking on were forced to come to a God explanation. Nothing else makes sense. God must have helped them. When you consider all the factors and all the opposition and all the animosity against the Jews, and all the plots against the work, nothing else makes sense except a God explanation. God must have helped them. He he must have done it. And do you know what? I think that's the very thing God was going for. I think that's what God wanted I think that's why God put them in that bad situation with all that opposition in the first place. So that after building the wall in 52 days, it would be clear to everyone that God's hand was on this. God has a history of working this way, doesn't he? You remember Gideon and his army? You got too many men, Gideon. You got too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. For Israel will become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. You got too many men. God winnows down an army of 22,000 to just 300 men. So that it might become clear to all that it was God's power delivering them and not their own. God regularly puts his people in difficult situations so that he might show himself strong in how he delivers them. So that he might deliver them in a way that requires a God explanation. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why I'm excited about every cent sent. The new thing we're doing with our church budget this year. It was budget hardships and shortfalls that pushed us to do something new, 
and different this year. But now that we're here, there is an opportunity for God to really show up and show off. There's an opportunity for something to happen that requires a God explanation for it to make sense. When we put no limits on what God may do, how much money we may give away at the end of the year, who knows how God might show up. Every cent sent potentially gives us the framework where only a God explanation makes sense of how much we send off to mission as a church, how much we give to the cooperative program this year and in years to come. With every cent sent, there are suddenly no limits on how high we build this cathedral together. You remember my opening illustration? Remember that different people working on the same project can have different attitudes based on their perspectives? One person is laying bricks, another is building a wall, but the builder with the bigger picture in mind counts the work as a privilege because he sees that he's contributing to the building of a great cathedral. So, the question for us as we turn toward applying all this is, what is our cathedral? What is our cathedral? What is the bigger picture for ABC? Have you ever written yourself to a place where you said, oh no, I'm going to have to answer that question now? <laughs> I, I did, coming to this place in this sermon. And for half a minute, I entertained the thought of casting a grand 100-year vision for this church. ABC turned 100 years old as I became the senior pastor, and I was tempted to lay out a vision for the next 100 years, even venturing to say that I hoped I could lead the church through the first third of a 100-year vision. I was tempted to do that, but I'm not. Even though I don't have elders now, I've been in enough elder meetings over the years to know that I shouldn't make grand pronouncements from the pulpit without the input of others. So I'm not going to give you a grand 100-year cathedral-like vision, but I do still want to give you some sense this morning of the bigger picture. It'll just be a picture that's a bit more modest in scope than a 100-year vision. To glimpse the bigger picture of ABC, instead of picturing a cathedral, I want you to picture an outpost. Think of Alberta Baptist as an outpost of the kingdom. There's a humility and scruffiness to it. We're not flashy. The paint chips off the walls in places. We're an outpost in the wilderness, after all, like every other church. There's a certain scruffiness to it, but there is also a glory to it. We are an outpost of the kingdom of God. We're a place where the word of the king is heard. We're a people who's, who worship the king, who created all things, who sustains all things. We are a garrison of the king being sent out on mission from this place. When you give to ABC, every penny is investing in that kingdom and in that mission 
You're investing and building with us an outpost of Christ's kingdom here. You're storing up your treasure in a kingdom outpost that matters. ABC matters. Imagine for a moment that this church wasn't here. Imagine if this outpost were taken away. Would it matter to this community? I think so. And I think so increasingly. Increasingly, this community knows you can find help and hope here. Increasingly, the people of Alberta City know that the welcome and love of Jesus awaits them here. If ABC weren't here, would it matter to the handful of other churches in Alberta City? I think so. In my short time here, it feels like the other churches in Alberta City look to us increasingly as a valued kingdom partner. Not as competition, as a kingdom partner. And ask yourself this, if this outpost of the kingdom wasn't here, would it matter to the university campus down the street? I think so. And I think so increasingly. Someone said to me in the midst of all of our budget discussions that we need to focus on reaching more professionals, more lawyers, more doctors, more engineers. Because of the campus down the street, we are reaching them. Just not at a time when they have money, right? (laughs) We're investing in the leadership of our church's future. And in scores and scores of other churches' futures. Only God knows how many other kingdom outposts will depend upon the disciples who were made here, who were fed here, who were first equipped here. As a church, we sent off two students to seminary last year, and we'll send off another this summer. We're training our first pastoral resident this spring, and Lord willing, you will hear him preach his very first sermon here this May. ABC plays an important role at a critical time in safeguarding and building up the faith of the future in these students. That's worth investing in sacrificially. That's a cathedral worth building, y'all. In uncertain times and in the face of increasing opposition, we are an outpost of the kingdom that provides firm grounding in the historic faith and reassures saints of all ages that all of this is good and beautiful and true. Look up from your brick laying, and see the bigger picture of what we're doing as a church. Also, look around at one another. Have you noticed we're becoming an increasingly diverse church family? We're increasingly reflecting the diversity of our city, and we're increasingly reflecting the greater diversity found in God's kingdom. People from every nation, race, class, 
every education level and economic standing are welcome here. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And we are baptizing into this family people from places like Japan, Honduras, China. We're drawing in and we're sending out more and more folks. We're part of making heaven more and more crowded. That's a future we get to build together as an increasingly diverse outpost of God's kingdom. But as an outpost of God's kingdom, we need to remember this. We are an outpost operating behind enemy lines. We're inside enemy territory. As in Nehemiah's day, there are still forces opposing God's work all around us. There always will be in a fallen, broken world. At this point, I plan to talk about all the opposition we face today. I was going to talk about the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, the devil. I was going to talk about the cold and hostile cultural winds that are blowing in our day. I was going to talk about our increasingly divided and polarized society. I was even going to talk about our increasingly limited resources and the effects of inflation. But all that talk about opposition was painfully cut from the sermon in the final edit last night. But what falls on the editing floor Saturday night usually gets picked up again Wednesday night. Uh, So you can come back for those thoughts and applications if you want them. I cut them from the sermon because more important, vastly more important than what kind of opposition we'll face is how we will respond to it. And that's where I want to draw our focus. I want to focus on the response that I believe God is calling for from us through Nehemiah. And it's this. Alberta, be bricklayers with the bigger picture. Be bricklayers who see the bigger picture. Be bricklayers who build together the kingdom here prayerfully and unafraid. Unafraid, without fear of the future. Who have a mind to work, trusting God's hand will be on us and with us. Remembering who we serve and who he has made us to be. Let's be bricklayers who build and protect a culture, a kingdom culture, which transcends and subverts the culture around us. Let's recognize with Nehemiah that there are special seasons. With the beginning of every since sent, 2024 has become a special season for us as a church. Now, every dollar you give in January affects what we can all give away in December. Every investment made in gospel ministry here propels us forward to sending every single cent away to do gospel ministry elsewhere. This year is a special year. If you like basketball, this is a full court press kind of year for us as a church. Or in Nehemiah's terms, 2024 is a sleep with your work clothes on kind of year. Because with every cent sent, we begin to see what we can do and what we can build together when there are no limits except for our own generosity. No limits except us. So, 
If you've never given before, this is your year. If you've been waiting for the right time, it's the right time. If you've never tithed before, this is your time. You may be in a season where tithing 10% feels like it's coming directly out of your savings every month. You're hesitant to start because it doesn't feel sustainable. Could this be your special season? A season to put the Lord to the test. I've had multiple seasons in my life where it felt like all, all I was giving was just eating up the savings month by month. Truth be told, we're still in a season like that right now. We're in a season like that right now again as a family. But we're also in a full court press kind of year together. This is a special season in the life of our church. So as a family, we are going to sit down this month and pray about giving more. And I call you to do the same with your family. Because 10,000 years from now, I will not regret sacrificially giving. You will not regret it. You will never regret giving to advance God's kingdom. I will never regret investing treasure in heaven by investing in gospel ministry here. Neither you nor I will ever make a sacrifice which God will not abundantly repay in the world to come. 10,000 years from now, we will only wish we had invested more. I know that. But I'll confess to you, sometimes it pains me to stroke a check. But in those moments, faith says, no, this is worth it. You will be eternally glad you gave. That's faith's perspective. Is that your perspective? As members of ABC, you've entered into a covenant to contribute regularly to the work of the ministry here. The church's bills are your bills because you are the church. You can contribute to the life of this church begrudgingly or dutifully. You can be like the wary man laying bricks or like the worried man building a wall. But that's not who I want you to be. I want you to be the man filled with wonder. Who contributes cheerfully. Who counts it a joy and a privilege contributing to the kingdom. To building together this spiritual cathedral. And in order for you to be that kind of person. You need to lift up your eyes. And be a bricklayer who sees the bigger picture. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we've seen the work in Nehemiah, may we see its relevance for our day, for our time, for our work. May you grip our hearts, not just with the need of the moment, but with a kingdom that is coming that no force of opposition can stop. May you grip us with what grips your heart, the needs around us and the gospel that meets those needs. Lord, may we be a cheerfully 
abundantly generous people. May we go to the work with a mind to work. May we be bricklayers who have the bigger picture in our minds and in our hearts. May we count it a privilege. May we say, there has never been a sacrifice I have made. We know you will abundantly repay all. Or may we look forward to a coming kingdom knowing we poured our lives out now for that kingdom. But we ask all this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.